Yeah, it took a couple clicks on that. For We Are Many podcast. Uh, we are back to you, bringing you part eight 
of our dive into Bobby Seale's book, Seize the Time, the story of the Black Panther Party. Today we're going to be picking it up on page 128, I think it is. Uh, I believe so, at Breaking Down Our Doors? Yep. Um, yeah, if you want to take us into the intro, though, we should probably do that first. Absolutely. Uh, welcome. We are your hosts. I'm Trisha. I'm this Rob. is Rob. <laughs> and we are For We Are Many. You can find us at uh, www.forwearemany.org. You can also find us on Facebook. We have the main page for We Are Many. We have two working groups. Um, it's labeled there as the support group, but we have since changed the name to the education and discussion group. Uh, we also have a mutual aid organization group. You can find us on Twitter at For We Are Many 2, on Insta uh, at For We Are Many Podcast, on TikTok at For We Are Many Podcast, and on YouTube at For We Are Many Podcast. <laughs> if that's not, welcome to the Department of Redundancy Department. These are all the areas where you can find us if you would like to support us. Every dollar helps. We have stuff set up on Patreon where you can sign up for a dollar a month or $3 a month, $5 a month. Every little bit does help cover our costs. What we are doing here to be able to help us continue to bring this content to you. Um, this right here is part of our series on the, the Revolutionary Left Book Club, excuse me, little tongue-tied. Um, every Thursday night we meet here and discuss revolutionary writings. Right now we are in the middle of reading Bobby Seale's Seize the Time. Is this part eight or part nine? <laughs> I believe it's part eight. Yeah, okay, I think so. Um, also, on Monday nights, we have our uh, live stream covering current events. We've also been kicking out some more labor history pieces, typically on Wednesdays and Sundays. Uh, just, you know, everything airs, whether it's live or pre-recorded. We try to air those at the same time consistently, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that way you know when to tune in. Um, we have just released some stuff on the, the continuation of our, our work with Eugene Debs there of, of following his evolution and his influences on both unionizing and building of political parties to actually have a influence there on behalf of the unions. So uh, by all means, check those out. Oh, I'm getting an echo. Uh, that was my fault. I already fixed okay. it. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, the link to the book is in the description, no matter what platform you're watching on. Um, and as right, I said, you... we're starting at uh, page 128, breaking down our doors. Um, if you would like to start out with that, Chadi just texted me. I'm going to text him back and let him know that we're on here if he'd like to join us. Uh, so give me just a moment. I'll see if I can get him in here with us on this too. Indeed. Um, while you're doing that, before we dive into the book, while everybody is presumably opening it and getting it ready, um, I also wanted to talk about how we are looking to expand the size of our central committee um, 
and basically we want to include everyone like whether you're you're just a supporter and want to have your voice heard and how we function that's fine by me frankly you don't have to appear in any of the streams or anything um that being said uh if you want to take part in the decision making uh or help us do the research for the pieces we do uh, or contribute content whether that's art memes articles videos whatever you're willing to do we're willing to platform absolutely if there's something going on in your area that needs attention brought to it and you'd like to um, either pre-record something you can send us to kick out or would like to go live with us, let us know. Um, we're all about that. We created this space for that purpose of being able to amplify other voices on the left and be able to show things that mainstream media is either actively ignoring or completely unaware of. And that means people on the streets grabbing their phones, grabbing them cameras, and actually documenting these things that are going on. So if you have something along those lines that you would like to bring some more exposure to, by all means, let us know. Please and thank you. Um, anyway, so starting at page 128, breaking down our doors. Really in the morning, a number of brothers and I have talked in my house about the fact that we had raised $10,000 for Huey's Defense Fund and about organizing bigger rallies to raise the thousands of dollars we needed to keep our legal machinery together, keep Huey out of jail. I left the house at about 12.30 p.m. and I know I left the back window open. That night, the cops busted into my house and found a sawed-off shotgun. In court, it came out that my fingerprints weren't on it and my wife's fingerprints weren't on it. The shotgun was planted. They charged me with having an illegal weapon and to poison the atmosphere, they originally charged me with conspiracy to commit murder. Some cops said he heard someone in my house saying, we want rap. He said that later that night, he heard the clacking of guns in my house. I didn't know anything about it because I was asleep. I was very tired from the preceding week of running around and going to different speaking engagements with Stokeless. When I got home that evening, I went to bed. Right. Here. Hello, hello. Uh, yes, there we go. Hi, Shadid. Welcome. We're just getting started here. Um, if you'd like to grab the link so you can read along with us, we're on page 128 of Bobby Seal's book. The link is in the description for the video feed or I can text that to you. I can copy um, it and drop it in the chat in here if that helps. That works too. Thank you, Rob. No problem. Well, I already have uh, the video open on Facebook so I can interact with the comments, but... Right. Your mic is still on mute though too, Shadi. Let's see. And technically, we are at the top of page 129 now. Rob just read the last two paragraphs on 128. Uh, so I'll hop in here and continue. Um, my wife woke me up around 2 a.m. and told me the cops were outside. 
The cops tried to pull a slick operation, calling me Mr. Seal and trying to sound polite. We would like to speak to you about a disturbance in the area. Well, I don't know anything about a disturbance, I said. I don't want you in my house. If you want to find out about a disturbance in here, go see the landlord who's upstairs. No, we want to talk to you in your apartment, they said. There was a disturbance around here. There was no disturbance in my house, and I don't want you in my house. If you want to see somebody about a disturbance, then go see the landlord. I had been talking to them through my apartment window. I was about to open the door all the way up, step out, and show them where the landlord was, but no sooner did I get the door two or three inches open when they knocked me up against the wall, put a shotgun to my belly, and started pointing a gun at my wife. I got mad and started hollering at the top of my voice, don't shoot my wife. They handcuffed me, sat me on the bed, and went all through my house. I didn't see any shotgun the night I was arrested, but I heard them say we got it. They expected to find it. We were made to sit on the couch handcuffed while two cops stood over us with guns trained on us. Sitting there, I couldn't see who he was talking to, but a cop said, look what we found. The cop near me answered, yeah, we expected to find that. Then they took me out. The lady next door, who was later a witness, came to us after the bust and said a man had rented a room in her building two weeks prior to the bust. He was a white guy, a racist, this woman said, and all he did was watch our house. She had never paid too much attention, but had seen him out there fooling around watching us. After the bust, she realized what was happening because she knew this guy had called the cops. The next day, she asked him why he did it. He was packing his bags and leaving at the time and told her that it wasn't any of her damn business and then he split. That was the last we saw of him. The cops say he's the one who called them. I was charged with possession of illegal weapons. I had an Army 45 and I knew there was a serial number on that weapon, but it was not illegal. In court, they delivered a gun with the serial number ground off, which is against the law. At the station, I thought about the arrest and I asked the cops what they were doing searching my house without a warrant. We didn't need a search warrant, they said. We've been listening to you all day. If they were listening to me, the main thing they heard was that we had made over $10,000 for Huey's defense fund. In jail, I thought over it again. They had our bail high, 6000 on me. They're planning to drain our funds, I said to myself. That must be what they're attempting. It was only a week after the rally for the defense of Brother Huey, and that is the only reason I could see for arresting me and my wife on such trumped-up charges. The charges against me were dropped by Judge Lionel Wilson. He quashed them on the basis that the policeman was lying, that he was contradictory in his statements, and because they had no reasonable cause to bust into my house at two in the morning. They said they had reasonable cause, but the judge ruled that if everything was peaceful and quiet as they testified it was, they had no reasonable cause to break into my house. It was illegal search and seizure. A month before my arrest, San Francisco Tactical Squad was busted into Eldridge Cleaver or has busted into Eldridge Cleaver's house trying to intimidate and harass him. They were trying to find a gun. When Eldridge first came into the party, Huey, Huey let it be understood that Eldridge couldn't have weapons because he was an ex-felon. The party had set that policy because we understood that we couldn't get into a lot of illegal activity. Huey always said our activities should be legal. Eldridge Eldridge followed orders and didn't himself have guns. One night after the search, Kathleen said, what if we actually got attacked and didn't have anything to defend ourselves with? Eldridge said that he would just have 
that she would just have to get herself a gun because the Minister of Defense had told him he couldn't have one because he was an ex-felon. So Kathleen went down to the store and purchased some guns. Eldridge told his parole officer that his wife was definitely buying some guns, and as they lived in the same house, there was nothing he could do. Eldridge stayed completely legal about this and stayed within the policy that Huey set. Huey made a lot of policies like that one, so we would have a legal organization. At the very beginning of the party, Huey had done a lot of research in law books, and he had also been in law school for a year. Huey would go to the new law library downtown, and he also studied the case histories that were in the North Oakland OEO Poverty Center, where we were able to obtain a lot of information. It was a multi-purpose poverty center, and one service was legal aid. They had two full walls of law books, so we could check into all the possible ways the cops might charge us with breaking. We were very aware of the laws related to illegal possession of weapons, so that we wouldn't get caught up in the snares and the traps of the system. At the time of my arrest, thousands of members were coming into the party. Seattle started a chapter, and the Los Angeles Southern California branch was already operating. My arrest was not only an effort to drain the party's resources, but also an attack on the leadership of the party. Chief of Staff David Hilliard, Deputy Minister of Defense Al Prentice Bunchy Carter, who has since been murdered, Bunchy Carter's brother, who is now dead also, and a girl who since dropped away from the party, were also busted the same night as I was. I first realized that other people had been busted when I came into the jail. I saw this girl in an interrogation cell. I was completely confused because I couldn't understand what she was doing there. She had been working with the party almost a year. Because I had been asleep at my house, I didn't realize what was going on. I heard one of the officers say, we've got the other four and we're booking them. When I was in the booking cell, they brought Bunchy out. They were going to book him, too. He said 20 cops surrounded them with shotguns, pointed at the car, and busted them for nothing. I finished getting booked and made my phone call. When Bunchy was booked, we were put in a cell together. I really began to worry about Bunchy because he had been in prison with Eldridge and he was on parole. One of the things Hugh and I, Huey and I dreaded as was brothers in the party who were on parole getting busted because the California fascist operation just sends them back to prison for practically no reason at all. I told Bunchy I had just made a phone call and that I would probably be out soon. You'll be the first one I come back and get out, I said, because you're on parole. My brother John Seal came to bail me out. My wife was in jail too, but I knew we could always get her out. The thing was to get Bunchy Carter out. Three hours later, we bailed him and his brother out. They told me everything that had happened. There had been a pistol in the glove compartment of the car, and there was another pistol in the car, but it wasn't concealed. They told me how the bust had happened and what they were charged with. We got our lawyer and about 100 bucks. I told Bunchy to go back to L.A. and continue organizing and to lay low. He said he would try to deal with his parole officer down there. In March, the cops busted into Eldridge's house for the second time. For that reason, Huey P. Newton wrote Executive Mandate Number 3 concerning Gestapo cops busting down our doors. It stated that we had a right to defend our threshold and that everyone must defend his threshold. If the police come up to our door acting in an unorderly manner, it said we could only consider them as a danger to our lives. Huey was aware that members of the John Birch Society, Ku Klux Klaners, and many other sick quote, patriotic racists, joined the police force, 
and also work with racist vigilante groups. Sound familiar? Still happening today. Um, Huey set forth mandate number three for all party members that said that when someone came to our door acting in a manner other than as a police officer should, kicking in our door and attacking, we were to defend ourselves. By this time, we had chapters in Seattle, Southern California, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and our national headquarters in Oakland. Every time they attacked us, the party grew. At that time, early in 1968, they were mainly, mainly interested in the leaders like Huey, Eldridge, Dave Hilliard, Bunchy Carter, and myself. When arresting us failed to stop the growth of the party, the power structure escalated its attack and began shooting us down in the streets, in our offices, and our homes. And man, like so much of this shit still resonates today because it's the same type of fucking tactics that cops will use still to set motherfuckers up and make it look like you're guilty of some shit that you're not. Planting fucking guns just to make a false arrest. I mean, he was lucky that in that one case that the judge called the cop out for it. Like, wait a minute, this was a bullshit arrest. Because, I mean, the... At that point in time, that's not something most people could even reasonably expect a judge to do, you know, for fuck's sake. It's, I it's mean, insane we should the expect a judge to carry out justice. We do not have a wrong <laughs> expectation to think so. Their fucking job is to protect our rights. That's why they're sitting on that bench. And we have the right expectations to think that they're going to carry out justice. I get what you're saying, but, you know... That's that's fucking right. sad as hell. You are bro. correct. But, we have the right to expect it. Yeah, yeah, but you know we've been tricked mentally to expect something else and to kind of like just give up. Well, I'm not saying ever give up. I'm saying like, um, even though we have the right to expect them to protect our fucking rights because that's the whole purpose of them being in that fucking seat. Oh, um, given that's right. their only job is to protect the rights of the people that's their only fucking job that's but why they're there them. who put them in power the people what is your job protect our fucking rights it's simple right the problem is where they have failed to meet those terms of the fucking job for so many decades and at this point in time during like the very heart of the civil rights movement you know they're, they're was little if any black representation in judges seats in uh the courts so to actually have a white judge go wait a minute you ain't fucking around like that like good on him yeah. that's all like yeah, yeah, for actually do his job thing. and it's matter of fact <laughs> i was gonna ask what year is this story taking place uh was this early 1969 if i remember right uh 1968 1968 okay. okay 1968 they was working magic in the court uh and yeah they had a little know-how they put some research behind them a think tank if you will uh and i think that's kind of like what needs to happen today motherfuckers keep diving off and all this on political shit we need to start enforcing the law people have a responsibility to enforce law you know just being uh, americans it's your right. responsibility to kind of like carry out or make sure freedom exists or justice is established. We can't always depend on our delegates. 
as we know. Right. They've forgotten that there are employees and they think they're our authorities instead of our employees. They, they've forgotten their place, their position, um, and who they actually answer to. They think we answer to them. They got it fucking oh, twisted. They, they we have, have to hold right people to accountable. Listen, people, and keep in mind, we're born sheep by default just because of the mental construct we're handed as children. You know what I mean? We, we get thrown right. into a, a psychological prison, if you will, or, or mental prison that keeps you, uh, I want to be a good worker, pay my taxes, die, and, and before I do, pass the shit on to my children. That's what they want, and that's what we've been tricked into. You know what I mean? But once again, right. even if they're wrong for uh, thinking we should answer to them, it's us who've been tricked out of our position and switched the role, and they're they're only responding to this sheep like behavior. And the very moment we change that, they're gonna that response is gonna change. You know, this goes back to part of what uh, conversation we were having the other day, where silence and complacency is basically, in their eyes, legally considered consent. You know. Like, if you don't speak up, they're going to be like, all right, you're okay with us doing this shit to you. And we we get tricked out our position once again, because like, okay, we we just on this topic. If if they make every time they put some type of policy, mandate, regulation, statute, it's always in the form of writing. And when it comes time to rebuttal something and they put it in writing, it's our job to respond to it in writing yes talking we keep protesting but we're not bringing nothing to the courts you see what i'm saying and you know y'all we all protested together god damn it y'all know the fuck (laughs) right (laughs) right (laughs) right that that is our roots (laughs) how we even all came to know each other how long are we gonna protest you know what i mean and and it seems like the government they really love this they get they get to let they motherfucker martial law out the bag oh okay y'all want to protest we've been waiting on this let me show y'all something well i mean ultimately i i think the answer to that is to become less governable yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> there's absolutely that. right and how do you do well, that Let, let's talk about how do you become less governable Honestly, I don't have a solid answer for you. Well, I mean, but what would be like a beginner's suggestion? You know what I mean? Like a good starting point. Like a motherfucker ain't gonna start off on on Ninja One Thousand CC. Well, I mean, frankly, first time riding a bike. But what would be the good beginner bike for this this type of thing? Talking about strikes, mass strikes, a fucking general strike. Yeah. Truth. Now, now. Once again, we're going to have to really get organized because people still got to eat, which means that we got to take care of each other if we going to go on. Solidarity funds, bro. How do, how, how, do, how do we get those? By joining unions and paying into them. <laughs> <laughs> right. That and mutual aid, you know. Yeah, right. And, and I mean, uh, since we're on the like topic of the since we're on the topic the, of the, the Black Panther Party, though, like that that was a big part of their focus was, well, I mean, they called it community programs, we call it community aid. It's the same fucking thing. 
They were, you know, setting up precursors or free stores. They were doing free clinics, the, the Breakfast for Kids program, which the government fucking co-opted. So that way, instead of, you know, having these young black kids be organized by the Black Panther Party, they were eating their free breakfast at school where they could be supervised. So they was compete. That's what government should do is compete. Do you know that's one of the uh, things about uh, separation of the states? Every state has a right to compete for citizens, and they might have certain shit in their legislature just to create a center for people to fucking move there. Right. And I think that's 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 point on, man. There needs to be some competition on who can take better care and protect the people the best. Absolutely. And like being in a state us. where you can, where like if you don't have the means to pay for it, you can actually access some free health care, things like that. Um, absolutely. They should be forced into that position. If they want to fuck around and have everything based in their capitalist bullshit, then they need to compete. What is their market right, value? So, like, as supposedly, as Americans, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And how does the privatization of healthcare, prisons, and uh, the pursuit of happiness? What the fuck? I had I had something in my head for that one. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I get what you're saying. You just got a little it, glitch. Well, it, it feeds the pursuit of happiness for whoever is capitalizing on all of those things and exploiting oh, every fucking thing, every aspect of it. Education oh, education, the, yeah. The pursuit of happiness. If these things are privatized, hmm. we're never going to be in a free society. Right. Well, that uh, and not only privatized, but like right now you might want to get in private school rather than public because the public school system is really a public fool system yeah it's it's uh, pretty and bad. I, I get but, what you're saying like certain shit shouldn't be privatized uh it shouldn't be put in you know private <coughs> sector, like prisons and shit uh people shouldn't be able to like profit from motherfucking prisons they there to be corrected you know what I mean? If any money going into that motherfucker right. ain't coming out, it should be awesome. Like, uh, you know, creating better men in there. You know what I mean? And deconstructing and reconstructing a better man. Put money behind that type of shit. But when, when everything is federally funded, you know what I mean? This is how they grab everything. Because they put the money behind it. And, and the people forget. Like, Oh, yeah, it's federally funded, so they just think it's the federal government's money. Well, where in the fuck do the federal government get their money? Right. The and the problem there lies in the fact that they're not being held accountable to the people when it's our fucking money that is sustaining yeah, yeah, these things. And ultimately, the federal government is getting that money from the fucking Federal Reserve, which isn't federal, federal at all. No. Right. No. Yeah, fucking they, privately they're, they're owned they're bank. Yeah, so they're borrowing money in everybody's name. Like every money that even came into our system is borrowed. Every time there's a birth certificate created, that's something that's taken to the Federal Reserve window saying that we have more equity. And the equity that they're talking about is the value inside of the new person on the document that's just created. Their energy, their ability mm -hmm. to work, manufacture at a future date is equity. And they're going right. to cash out on this equity or borrow on this equity from the Federal Reserve. And this, right. and they're literally. Becoming, yeah, when we talk about becoming less governable, 
I think that's the first thing. If we're going to go on a strike, let's step out of their motherfucking system so they can't no longer borrow money in our names behind our motherfucking backs. Right. They basically look at that as something to leverage against what they expect you to produce for them in wealth throughout your fucking life. And that's fucked. Yeah, see, but that's some dirty shit and it's fraud because, you know, usually when, when you contract it, in any capacity uh there's supposed to be like a full disclosure and the people who sign in the document supposed to know exactly uh what this document is supposed to do transmit uh become or not become like they're supposed to have full disclosure but they're not given that when they're told to uh put their child with a social security number or on a birth certificate so they don't even know that you know they're giving them information information to turn their child into fucking uh, a monetary value for this motherfucking government to use. Yep. They don't realize what they're doing, what they're setting themselves so up if for. we're going to go on a massive strike, and I'm all with you on all levels, if motherfuckers want to quit working, work together, take care of each other, I'm with that shit. But I, I think the real massive strike should be done by stopping their ability uh, to cash in on us. I mean, ultimately, my concern there is how do we do that without seizing the state? No, so what do you mean by without losing the state? What do you mean? No, without seizing Seizing. the state. Seizing? Yeah, like taking. Isn't actually taking back control over our own fucking government, seeing how, you know, they're not doing their jobs and being held accountable to us. Well, first thing, we got to quit feeding it. The, the more we feed this monster is the stronger it's going to be the very minute we start starving this monster it's going to get weak and it's going to get weak and it's <laughs> we got to quit feeding and the longer we keep letting our babies get cashed in and taken to the federal reserve window these motherfuckers are going to keep borrowing money and, and putting us up under a money trap capitalism mm-hmm. If you will, uh, you can put whatever label on it. You know what I mean? Trickle down economics. <laughs> we want to get rid of that. We need oh, to we get want- rid of that. Yeah. yeah. Need- At this point, it's not even just a want. <laughs> it's it's something we have a right and a responsibility to take back. Yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but you know, that's what I'm saying. Like, a lot of this stuff that we learned as adults, especially when it just comes to uh, sovereignty under a republic, you know, and I'm not talking about the sovereignty uh, movements and all that shit. I'm just talking about sovereignty from a motherfucking constitutional point of view, the way they use the word and what the fuck they meant. You know what I mean? So uh, if we're we're gonna get back to sovereignty, we gotta quit letting our children be uh, contracted uh, into their system because and not only that, when when you sign those papers, they are the power of attorneys at that Federal Reserve window. So they're acting as your attorney in some capacity when they go to borrow money based on the equity in such and such name. Just imagine your motherfucking the power attorney just making all kind of moves you don't even fucking know about. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like that's even having that type of power of attorney without your consent or even notification that's what i'm saying and people have no idea and we need to like i said i think the very first step uh is a massive strike uh and and quit feeding the beast quit being food for the beast quit feeding this motherfucker the more we feed it the, the more it's gonna stay strong 
If you starve it, it's going to get weak and die. Indeed. Right? Um, so Sadly, where, like, where were we? Because I accidentally closed the book. Give me just a second to pull it back up. That's all this. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. Anyways, going back to that, sixty-eight. You say, Rob? Yeah. Yep. We are on page. They had to put down some game in sixty-eight for that just to do that. Like they had to be on point. Because I, I, in my mind, shit was rougher for black people in sixty-eight than it is now. <laughs> right. I mean, I wouldn't disagree, but I, I feel like it was just more open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More open. But just think about if the judge didn't want, you know, these guys to have any freedom. He's already against them. So they had to be powerful to get somebody that's against them to actually respect their motherfucking constitutional securities and let these brothers go. Like, that's that's some powerful shit. That's where we was at, though. Uh, Well, he was well ahead of it. Sorry. And, well, when they can literally be like, fuck you, fingerprint that bitch. Oh, I've never touched it. My wife's never touched it. Fuck you. That's not our gun. <laughs> you know, like it, it's very obviously planted evidence. And at least the judge could see that bullshit was what was happening with those cops who made the arrest, you know, and was like, wait, wait a minute. You you can't cut this case like that. It ain't happening. You know, Um so, I mean, at least they were fucking released off of that one, but they kept coming back fucking with them. It, just for espousing their own constitutional rights under the law. Well, and the well, fact that they were gonna, adhering. It ain't just that. <laughs> when, when, so well, that's, got, that's a big part of it. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, when you got people that's, that can potentially change the mental construct people was programmed with, they they are gonna yeah, attack you. That's dangerous. You not. Yeah, they they're gonna Well yeah, the first rule of government is, is its own preservation. It the government doesn't care who's at the top or who's in office. They care about their own power. Yeah. Right. Absolutely and they're gonna this. protect it. Mm-hmm. And the way they maintain power is, is throwing us in the public food system. Uh, running us through that program to think a certain way, see the world a certain way. We really don't even know where the fuck we at to begin with. But anyways, if you get people that's going to threaten that, changing their whole fucking system up at its roots, oh my god, yeah, you're going to get fucking whacked. Because they they were changing the narrative. They were showing people. You've been fed disinformation from the fucking start and brainwashed into supporting your own fucking oppression. Let's step the fuck up out of that. Let's educate ourselves on these things and actually confront them. And that's fucking dangerous. It, you know, enter fucking thought police. Motherfuckers being like, wait a minute. It's not okay for you to think and speak like that. You're threatening our fucking governmental system. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. That's the point because you're corrupt. You know? Yeah, you know, police ride around with that fucking shit, protect and serve on their car, right? Now, 
in the public food system, I did learn about like motherfucking uh, subjects and predicates. You know what I mean? The beginning of the uh, sentence is usually the subject, and then the predicate follows and shit like that. Uh, and you learn the difference, you know, between a, a complete sentence and an incomplete sentence and shit like that, right? So when you look at these fucking mm-hmm. police cards and you see to protect and serve, okay, that that sounds like a motherfucking predicate. Like you, you missing the subject. Who are you protecting and serving? Capital. You know what I mean? And Capital. It's just, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's just the way they word shit just seems so motherfucking slick and devilish to me. And you just throwing shit right in my motherfucking face thinking I'll never connect the dots. Right. Right. That's precisely their intention there is to misconstrue to people what it is that they're doing. Like, we're going to put some pretty words on this shit, like serve and protect all over the side of our fucking pig cars and make people think, oh, that's what police exist for. Serve and protect the people. No, doesn't say the people on there because they ain't going to tell you. (laughs) I think a lot of us are divided, keep us separated. Uh, by this fucking word game they play, separating stuff and turning shit into its own category. And it's like, motherfucking, there are certain uh, major organs that's needed for the whole human body to function. You know what I mean? And yeah. like when people can't see like a co- cohesive wholeness of something and they think something can just operate by itself, like a liver ain't shit by itself. It needs to be in the human body to have some type of motherfucking value and to make a bigger thing work. Right. You know what I mean? And I think they take like these aspects of uh, different views and like left and right and motherfucking uh, are you libertarian? Are you motherfucking Democrat? Like they take all this shit and they divide it up and try to make it its own thing. And it's like people need to, you know, have like a cohesive wholeness and like kind of piece all these pieces of the puzzle together. You know what I mean? And the longer they keep on creating these divisions and and we identify ourselves as part of that division, like we've been conquered mentally. From the start, it's easy to conquer somebody when you're indoctrinating them with bullshit from the fucking very beginning and making them think this is how shit is. This is how shit will remain. And, you know, you indoctrinate a child into that and never teach them to question everything, then they're going to be yeah. stuck in that system and listen until they wake up and go, wait a fucking minute. Uh, wait a fucking minute. <laughs> Been getting lied to my whole life. Yeah, you know? A, uh, um, uh, a heavy uh, emphasis on uh, don't ask questions or don't question authority, especially right. when you're a child. Right. And they put that shit down tough, too. That's part of the problem. Right. And it's like, that starts even with shit that people are indoctrinated into as far as how you're supposed to be as a parent is, don't question my authority, I'm the parent, therefore I'm the boss, instead of people being taught to raise their children in a manner of like, well, no, you're a human being too, let me hear your perspective, let's talk about this. And actually discussing things. Like, why is it that you're taught to not treat your children as an equal human being? It's one thing if you're like, hey, wait a fucking minute. Don't go running in that road because you might get hit by a car. Versus don't question my authority. Like, if a kid asks you, well, why why should I do this and not that? And you're like, because I said so. Motherfucker, that's not a fucking reason. No, talk to your kids about, okay, well, here are the 
ethical boundaries of why we expect this behavior and start with maybe teaching your children where their rights are and where their rights end at the point that the next persons begin. So that way they understand that, yes, other people have to respect your boundaries and rights, just as you have to respect theirs. And the only way that we're going to actually fucking grow as a people and find some of that fucking unity is to come to the table with that ethical stance of you are a fellow human being and my rights end where yours begin. Therefore, I don't have a right to control you. That aspect of people seeking control, that right there is a very toxic root of it, where it's, it's like people need to really understand that if you want to control somebody, you should start and end with yourself, because well, you don't have the right to be yeah, imposing. Control is an uh, uh, energy dynamic. Uh, people, uh, they try to control to pull other people's energy. Uh, and I, I think in order to defeat that, uh, people have to learn how to connect uh, with the source of energy itself and not have Absolutely. to depend on being a vampire to suck somebody else's. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, That's I think that our main way to kill that is, you know, we got to have some type of cultivation system going on, you know. Uh, right. And that's why get rid of the pub public motherfucking food system. You know what I mean? <laughs> or even seize that and be like, wait a fucking minute. We're not okay with you teaching a whitewashed version of history. We're not okay with you teaching indoctrination and nationalism and things oh, like that. Like, you're supposed to worship this fucking flag. We need to put a stop to those things. The and when it comes to a public school system, if you will, who's in, who's, who's in charge of like what that curriculum is going to be? What's in the curriculum? The what are these board. people going to the who? The school boards. School boards. And that, that even itself becomes an inherent problem because, okay, if you're in, um, in a, a more liberal area, you're more likely to have people going, okay, we would like to focus on sciences, etc. Whereas if you're in motherfucking Alabama, they want to teach you about Jesus riding dinosaurs. <laughs> and so, like, it, that becomes difficult to maintain you know any kind of across the board level of actually teaching knowledge instead of teaching opinion when even the school boards are controlled by you know whatever the local thought is on well, right fine. versus wrong or what should be taught where it's like okay with without um an oversight saying well no we need actual standards here across the board of what needs to be taught it it becomes a very slippery slope ethically of how much control we actually maintain over what our children are learning in school and you know it, whether we allow things like that to be indoctrinated into kids yeah i agree Bobby Anywho, um, Rob, you had asked where we had left off. We are at the bottom of page 131 where it says, uh, shoot out the pigs kill Bobby Hutton. Okay. Um, if, uh, 
If you would like to take a turn reading and you're already there, go for it. If not, I'll continue reading. Give me like please. two seconds and I'll be there. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Uh, one day in the middle of March 1968, Eldridge called me up and said, Hey man, come over here. I got something to hit you out about the pigs plotting to attack us. I went over to Ramparts and they took me into a room. It was a white girl standing there. Uh, Eldridge said, tell Bobby what you told me. And she ran down to me that she had been sitting in a bar and heard two cops talking about the Black Panther Party. One was saying that on April 2nd, they would have something for us. They said they were going to get rid of all the Panthers. I asked her if that was what she heard. She ran down some other things about the Panther Party. And she said they went over April 2nd again and uh, talked about doing the Panther Party in. I looked at Eldridge and we walked out of the office. What do you think, man? He asked me. Man, they're going to try and attack us, I said. I asked him if this chick was reliable. Eldridge thought she was pretty reliable, so we knew we'd have to check it out. Uh, three days later, an ex-policeman, uh, Black Cat, came over to the office and uh, told me that he had heard some cops saying that sometime in April they were going to try to get rid of us. <clears throat> he had heard rumors going around and he thought he'd come down and tell us. I talked to Eldridge and I told everybody we were going to have to get some guns, keep the guns in our houses, and keep them clean and ready because there's no telling what they might do. We had some guns before, but I told everybody to really be prepared and make sure that if somebody didn't have a gun, uh, to see that they got one because there was no telling what was going to happen. We might get attacked at any time. At the birthday rally for Huey, we had announced that we were running for Congress from the 7th Congressional District. The primary is to get Huey's name and my name on the, on the ballot as Black Panther Party candidates running on the Peace and Freedom Party tickets were coming up in June. I was running for the State Assembly for the 7th Assembly District. We had scheduled a rally in the Black community at Defremery Park for April 7th, Sunday. It was to be a barbecue picnic rally for the Huey P. Newton Defense Fund and the campaign funds to run Huey and myself. We were already getting a lot of good response from the people. Many people had already said that they were going to be there for the dollar a plate barbecue. Uh, we had sound trucks and all sorts of publicity out in the community. Sound trucks. You never hear about that anymore. Right. You see, you see it in movies, right? Like back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, like there would literally be vehicles that drove around making fucking announcements over a loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. We need to bring that back. Dude, right? Epic. Sound trucks. It's the future. Fuck yeah. And also the past. <laughs> right. Uh, Cyclical. <laughs> right. Uh, we even got a radio station to announce it. We've been getting donations from stores of uh, barbecue ribs, things we needed to make potato salad, barbecue meat, and stuff like that. We got chickens and boxes of wieners and a, a lot of other food that people had donated to us for this barbecue. <coughs> At the same time, this rumor had gotten around inside the party that the pigs were going to attack us. Threatening notes had come to me from members of the Sheriff's Department. I assume it was the Alameda County Sheriff's Department. The notes just said, I'm the sheriff, and when you come into court, you're going to get it. How, like, how basic, how unoriginal. You're going to get it. Not to mention, like, here, have some incriminating evidence that you're being threatened by the Sheriff's Department. But right. why on earth they thought that was a fucking wise move is beyond me. Because they thought Dumbass. they were infallible. We still see that today. Remember, right. Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd 
on tape. On camera, right. Uh, right, I said on and tape. Totally, well, yeah, as if it was like an old school camera with a VHS tape popped in that bitch or something. But, but the thing is, like, he felt that fucking confident that, like, yeah, it's okay, I can fucking do this with all these cameras on me. And my fellow pigs are going to stand here and hold people back so they can't physically stop me from murdering this man. And had the audacity to go into court and try to pretend like he was right. Like, Fuck you, guy. Off to prison with you. I mean... I still don't think that's justice. I think that's simply accountability. That is accountability. Justice won't be seen until every motherfucking one of these pigs is held accountable. Plus, we see an incremental fucking change in how shit is operated, how everything is run, because this shit is based in systemic fucking racism and we need to put a stop to that shit. It's inherent in the existence of the police itself as an institution and is still rampant and unacceptable. That will be justice, is when we no longer have to worry about our black men going to be murdered in the fucking streets because, oh, you got accused of using a fake $20 bill or any other fucking bullshit-ass excuse. Right. We will see justice when black women are no longer being killed in jail for having not fucking used a turn signal in traffic. I could go on down the list. We will see justice when black children are no longer being fucking murdered in the park while playing. That will be justice when this no longer fucking happens. I digress. You would like to so, is to reopen those fucking cases and get the motherfuckers right. in prison. Right. 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 No fucking argument there. Accountability. Because so many people, you know, like the the fucking Democrats, the, the liberals, they went back to breakfast as soon as the Chauvin trial fucking started, like the shit's over and done with, like, oh, you got held accountable. Well, motherfucker, that's one pig out of how many that have murdered innocent fucking people. The prosecution asked for 30 years and they gave him 22. Right. Right. Like, what the fuck? Like, and, he uh, still mean, did not be get... less than 20 with sick, or sick time, yeah. <laughs> 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 right. Good time. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. He shouldn't have the option of getting out early. He sure as shit shouldn't have gotten a fucking reduced sentence. Uh, to me, that... That is even shortchanging the accountability right there. Because if he was really being fully held accountable, there would have been first-degree charges, and the motherfucker would be put away for life with no chance of parole. If it was anybody who wasn't a fucking pig who did this on fucking camera, that's what we'd have gotten. Life, no chance of parole. And in death penalty states, we would have gotten the fucking death penalty. Why is this pig not subject to the same fucking harshness of sentence? Well, yeah, that's, any other that's motherfucker the thing. would think be. About, think about if it, it would have been the other way around, both in how the narrative would be and how the punishment would be if George Floyd right. killed Derek Chauvin. Right. They would have buried him under the jail. I mean, just to be realistic about it, it's not okay. <sighs> 
Anyway. <laughs> Never will be. Um, but this just goes to show that for decades, the police have been unafraid to just show their hatred. Right. And I mean, I can't say nobody cared. Obviously, a lot of people cared. But in terms of the justice system, nobody gave a shit. No, this is where the, the thin blue line started at of other police standing in the way of justice and standing up trying to protect murderous cops who they knew were fucking guilty and they prevented those people from being held accountable because oh but this motherfucker has a badge and said he was scared so it's okay <laughs> right no it's not right fuck that thin blue line burn that thin blue line that entire fucking ideal oh, of defending each other cops, it, it it's unacceptable. Go ahead, Shetty. They should be put under the Rico Act. Come here and everything yeah. is <laughs> Like, what the fucking fuck? Right, right. <laughs> An organized fucking criminal group. Like, this is literally a criminal organization that subsists on murder, on Oftentimes, fucking being the ones dealing the drugs themselves, don't get me fucking started. I've seen too much with just Fang out of Flint, the Flint area narcotic group who goes around doing drug busts. And most of them are taking the spoils home with themselves to shove up their own fucking noses while they put people in jail for being in possession. You know, um, it's a criminal fucking enterprise that's endorsed by the government. Yeah. It's fucked. Um, anyway, though, so, he went on to say this what? kind of stuff had been going on for a while. I had to appear in court on April 1st, hence the reference to April 1st, and we were trying to speculate on which one of the deputy sheriffs had written the notes. We were used to getting threatening notes, but the cats would never hit say who they were. And, you know, if you get a threatening note from the American Nazi party, you don't really pay attention to it. But when you get threatening notes from fools who say they're in the sheriff's department, you begin to speculate a little bit because you know the cops want to deal with you. So I holed up in an apartment while we were doing some quick investigation onto whether one of the deputies who act as bailiffs in the Alameda County Courthouse in downtown Oakland has actually written the notes. We wanted to check out who was wearing guns and try to case the courthouse and look around all the buildings before I showed up in court to see if anybody was going to shoot me on the courthouse steps. It was all related to the rumors that they would try to get us April 2nd. Uh, I didn't show up in court and the judge issued a warrant for me. We were going to try to expose this possible plot and we figured the judge would eventually have to see why I didn't appear. But it didn't work out that way. Thursday evening, I was at the house where I was staying. I did some reading, got a phone call from Eldridge, and went to sleep. Then I woke up and decided to turn on the TV to catch the news. Someone said, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot today. But I was in the back room of this apartment and it didn't really dawn on me that MLK had been assassinated because here I was hiding out in this room until we finished our investigation. Well, I came back into the room and some other kind of news was on but all of a sudden it was announced again martin luther king has been assassinated and i said what and i turned up the tv martin luther king assassinated it really got off of me. 
I went to the window and saw a lot of cops. The cops weren't supposed to know where I was, but I saw cop cars coming down the street, four cops in a car. I didn't know what was happening. Then I saw two more cop cars coming down and going back up the street, four in a car. And I went back in the room and thought, God, dog it, maybe, maybe they're trying to surround this place. So I went around and looked in the back. I was upstairs, or I was in the upstairs room window. I was able to see an empty lot to the side with a lot of trees around the driveway of the house, and I could see a stairway going down. If I crawled across the bathtub and out the window, I could reach the platform. Uh, I went or I went back and shaved, and then called my brother up and told him to bring his clippers over. And I told him to cut my hair. He asked why, and I said, "Just cut my hair." I checked out the uh, closet of this apartment where I was staying. It belonged to a friend of mine. Uh, there were some clothes in there, other than the ones I had been wearing. My brother left, and later that evening, I got a call from Eldridge, who told me everything was all right. But the next day, it was bad, man. I began to think about the monkeys that had surrounded the place. Uh, I saw police cars every five or ten minutes, and it looked to me like they were circling the block. Then I saw two cars drive up, and this is the thing that got me off. When I was looking out the front window, one car drove up four, do four doors to the right, and when the guy got out of the car, he unbuttoned his suit coat. He walked across the street and across from where I was staying. That's a cop, I said to myself. I know that's a cop. Damn it, these bastards are trying to surround me up here. So I changed clothes right quick, put on some shades, crawled out the back window, and came down among the trees. Then I cut across the lot to the right and onto the street, and I just walked down the streets of Berkeley. I saw cops everywhere. I hadn't heard any more news, and I didn't know about the riots that were taking place. I speculated that there was going to be some trouble, though. I ran into a cat I knew who didn't recognize me because I had completely shaven and cut my natural way down. Um, I walked up to him and said, hey, man, what's happening? He just looked at me and I said, this is Bobby Seal. It had been all in the press and that I hadn't shown up in court. So he just looked at me and said, man, what's going on? Look, man, I said, I want, I want you to drive me somewhere, at least out of this vicinity, because I think the pigs are surrounding the place I just left. I snuck out the back way, and if they bust in there now, they might come looking for me, and I need somebody to drive me away from here. So I got into his Volkswagen, and we drove down uh, San Pablo Avenue and Dwight Way. That corner was flooded with cops, man, flooded with cops, 25 or 30 of them. There was a police telephone on the corner that a cop was talking into. They seemed to be watching cars, but I just looked at them. I had my shades on and acted normal and the cops didn't recognize me. We drove down and got on the freeway, went across the Bay Bridge and drove out into the peninsula. We drove in the hills for an hour and I talked to the brother a long time about the party and Martin Luther King and what was going on. I began to hear more about the riots and everything that was happening. I finally told him to take me to Lo Palo Alto where I knew somebody. Um, when we got down to the sister's house there, I told him to take a message back to Eldridge and David Miller. I gave him the phone number of the place where I was and told Eldridge to call me about the investigation of the possible plot. Eldridge called me late that night and told me that Judge Stats had pulled the warrant off and just didn't want me to start anything. I mean, with the riots, with, with knowing the, the context of the riots, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Of course he didn't want him to start anything. There was already riots going on in 110 American cities after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Right, they were 
fucking scared at that moment as they should have been because you know they they are finally again being held accountable by the people uh you wanna you wanna read for a bit uh let me see here i'm I've lost the spot now from looking up to talk to you. Uh, 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 early the next morning on page 134. Uh, there we go. Thank you. Uh, early the next morning, April 6th, the brothers and sisters were cooking the food and preparing salads and stuff for the rally and barbecue at Defremery Park. There were sisters down at Father Neal's church and over at David Hilliard's house cooking potato salad and also in the back of the office barbecue and ribs. We had a real operation going with sound trucks throughout the community, four or five of them. We had leaflets everywhere and a big bus, the Peace and Freedom Party's big sound truck, telling people to be at Defremery Park for a $1 a plate barbecue to raise money for Huey P. Newton Defense Fund and for campaign funds for Huey and myself. We had a beautiful thing going and we knew it was gonna get thousands of black people out there. Since the judge withdrawn the warrant on me, I came down to the office. A lot of cops were floating around the office. There were cops everywhere. Many more cops than usual. That whole day, the brothers were saying that if they attacked us, we would defend ourselves. One of the captains said he was going to transfer some weapons over to San Francisco. I told him to make sure they weren't loaded, to keep them all in the trunk, and to keep everything legal. But I said, if it looks like you're going to get attacked or something like that, you might have to use the weapons because you've got a right to defend yourself. That afternoon, I met Eldridge at the Peace and Freedom Party office, and he said he was going to David's house that evening. I told Eldridge to take me down to the church because I wanted to talk with Father Neal about going to Martin Luther King's funeral. Eldridge had the white car that the Peace and Freedom Party had picked up cheap and given to us. That was in the late afternoon. I asked Eldridge where he was going, and he said he was going over to David's house. I told him I was going over to Father Neal's house, and I left with Father Neal in his car. After I was introduced to Father Neal's family, we sat down and ate. We were talking about the party and the party's philosophy. Father Neal was in a clergyman's organization that was set up so that whenever there was a disturbance in the community, this little group, a minister, a lawyer, and a doctor, would be taken to the trouble. I love that. That's awesome fucking emergency response. Um, each group had a section of the city that it was assigned to. The organization had been set up for quite a while. Father Neil got a phone call and all of a sudden he jumped up and said that we had to go, that they were shooting at somebody. His wife asked where he was going and he said there's a shootout going on somewhere. The police attacked somebody and shot two or three people. Then I began to think about this April 2nd thing and those threatening notes from the so-called sheriff. I naturally thought about the party. We jumped in the car and drove all the way to Berkeley where the switchboard office was. They said the shootout was between Panthers and police on 28th Street in Oakland. At that point, I was wondering who the supposed party members were. I knew a lot of people just didn't have any guns. I got as much information as I could and then told Father Neil I wanted to go down there. The other ministers started saying that they didn't think we should. Then information came over the radio that the shootout was over and that they had all been arrested. The report said that Eldridge Cleaver had been arrested and that Bobby Hutton was shot. At that point, they didn't say he was dead. It 
also said that David Milliard had been arrested and two or three other Panthers had been shot. It was late at night by the time we got the final report. David and Eldridge were arrested and little Bobby was supposedly shot. I felt the best thing to do was to sit down and start trying to figure out some way to get them out of jail. I gave Kathleen Cleaver and a number of other Panthers a phone call and told them to stay in their houses and if they got attacked, they ought to defend themselves. I went to my father-in-law's house. I began to think about everything I could about what had happened and how to go about getting the brothers some political defense. Father Neil called me up about two hours later, about 2.30 or 3.30 in the morning, and told me that Bobby Hutton had been killed. He told me that Eldridge Cleaver and Bobby Hutton had somehow been forced into a house. As they were coming out of the house, Bobby had his hands up, but they shot him in the head. Eldridge and I had been spotted twice by cops in the white car that day. We saw them looking at us and carrying on. I really felt they shot Bobby Hutton thinking they were shooting me. I was mad. I knew Huey had said that we didn't believe in spontaneous riots. But I was so mad at that point that I felt like I was going to tell all those people at the rally next day to turn Oakland upside down. I was going to tell every black person who came to the rally to tear up the town. I was going to tell them to hit the big man, the big time businessman's business. That's what I was going to tell them. I kept thinking about the fact that Huey had said no spontaneous riots. But I felt differently with Bobby Hutton dead and feeling that they thought they were killing me and instead they murdered little Bobby Hutton. Maybe I shouldn't have felt that way, but that's what I was thinking. The next morning I went over to Gary's office so that he could take me up to the police station where we had called a press conference. Before we went there, Gary went to visit Huey at the county jail in Oakland, and Huey sent a tape back and told me to remember to tell the people not to spontaneously riot, but to tell them to organize themselves that the cops occupy our community like a foreign troop, and that we have a right by the Constitution of the United States to have guns and weapons in our homes. He urged me to tell them not to spontaneously riot because that's not the correct method and because all it would do would get 50 or 100 black people killed, maybe 200 wounded, and thousands arrested as in riots in the past. He said we had to think of the safety of our people, even when brothers were murdered like Bobby Hutton, like was like Bobby Hutton was murdered. Uh, he said I knew that and shouldn't act on emotions, but should act on the correct methods of the struggle. Huey told me to tell the people to arm themselves, put arms in their homes, and to say if they see racist cops brutalizing and murdering our people, that we have but one alternative, to go forth as an organized force in our community to defend ourselves against unjust, fascist, brutal attacks. I went over to June Hilliard's house, uh, June is David's brother, two blocks from Defremery Park where the rally was being held. A large crowd was moving toward the park. Gary came to June's house and took me up to Oakland Police Headquarters where he had arranged for the press conference. I wasn't too happy about having it there, but I thought, well, if I'm with Gary and they arrest me, they'll just have to do it right. So we held a press conference and told the press what Huey had said. I know Huey was right, and I made, a point, made it a point to not function off of emotions because emotions won't guide a correct revolutionary struggle. Then I went back to the park and spoke to the people and told them exactly that. I told them we were not going to spontaneously riot, 
but riot because we were with the power structure. We're against the racist power structure of the pigs and the murderers. I told them that if we rioted, the only thing that was going to happen was maybe 50 would get killed, 200 would get shot up and wounded, and three or 4,000 arrested. And that's too many warriors gone. I told them that in those past riots and rebellions, people were exposing their disgust with the social evils that exist in society, but that now we had to organize ourselves and learn to defend ourselves with guns when we were unjustly attacked. I told them that we should go to our homes and make sure each home had a shotgun, a three fifty or three seventy-five. I think that's a typo because that's a three fifty-seven Magnum. <laughs> I never heard of no three seventy-five. <laughs> uh, and a, a three-point eight pistol. Be safe with weapons, I said. The Black Panther Party isn't going to get hundreds of our people shot up, killed, and wounded, even though they murdered Bobby Hutton. And we don't like it. Bobby Hutton was a freedom fighter. And I ran it all down to them about Bobby Hutton. And you know what? Those people really applauded at what I had told them. It showed me that the people had learned from the past riots. That they had really learned that when they go out in big riot form. That the only thing that happens is they're surrounded by Gestapo policemen. And that they're herded around and shot up like cattle. People related to the idea of being spread out in the community. I told them that if the pigs come down in our community in vicious force, then we should move around in small groups of threes and fours in defense of ourselves. I explained to them that the if pigs bring tanks down to our community, the young brothers are going to have to use guerrilla tactics and learn how to take those tanks, because those tanks are brought there only to slaughter and kill our people. The people clapped, man. The people really dug it. They really dug this understanding, and that got off with me and made me feel like I was doing right. It showed me that the people had learned, and what the people had learned is that what the party had learned. That's the reason the organization came to exist in the first place. Oh, goodness. Oh, yes. um, would you like to read the next section? Yeah, sure. Um, okay. After the Getting April on the ballot? Yeah. After the April 6th shootout, we buried Bobby Hart, uh, Hutton as Fannin had said we would and tried to get Eldridge out of jail. He was being held in the Bayville uh, State Prison or Vacaville. I don't know. I'm not from California. <laughs> About 50 miles right. east of Oakland. Uh, we, be be yeah. we began to mobilize people for the primaries that Huey and I were running in that June. Huey's trial had already been postponed several times, but the Peace and, Pe Peace and Freedom Party had uh, been officially placed on the ballot. In May, while Eldridge was still in jail, Kathleen and I went up to uh, New York to help raise funds for Eldridge. I made a speech then that a lot of people wondered about. I said in my speech, we hate you white people. And I didn't put it in the proper context to what I wanted to say. We didn't hate anybody for the color of skin, but at the same time, we were reserved towards a lot of white radicals who wouldn't move or do anything. A lot of people got upset over that part of the speech. I laugh about it sometimes because I'm not truly a diehard cultural nationalist. Uh, that night I wanted to knock a play we had seen in New York 
in which Leroy Jones and some others got on stage, silhouetted in shadows and hollered, black, 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 black. That went on for about nine or 10 minutes and it just got absurd. It kept going over, black, 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 black. Every once in a while, a voice would change pitch, but it went on and on. It didn't make any sense. It didn't convey anything. We called Jones and Ron Karenga the high priests of cultural nationalism because they didn't really produce anything except fanatics. They would have been better off if they were going to express anything, to talk about revolutionary culture in a way that would change something. Four or five Panther brothers and I sat in the audience and ridiculed it among ourselves. When I made that speech, a lot of people asked questions. Take everything else in that speech, and when you come to that statement, we hate you white people, weigh it with everything else I said. I was ridiculing the cultural nationalism of Jones and his black, 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 black. They were embedding a form of black racism in the minds of people rather than giving them proper perspective on the revolutionary structure. Um, I'm gonna catch up on comments in a minute, but uh, rather uh, in New York, people were interested in Brother Eldridge, Brother Huey, Huey's trial, and in the fact that the cops had murdered Bobby Hutton. Cops attempting to attack and wipe out the party had caused the party to grow. And when we left New York on May 22nd, 1968, their first chapter was forming. The primaries were coming and we did a lot of campaign work. We had acquired a new office before the April 6th shootout. The Bay Area Committee to Defend Political Freedom raised some money and printed up 50,000 broadsides about what the government was doing to Huey. Half of the reason we ran Huey was to let people see that Huey wasn't what the power structure was trying to picture him, a small-time hoodlum. Throughout the primary campaign, there was a lot of conflict. We had trouble with other black groups who were trying to run in the 7th Congressional District with some peace and freedom people over $1,300 we thought we were supposed to have, and with some of the brothers and sisters who still didn't understand the significance of running Huey P. Newton for Congress. The night of the primary, our workers went out to get tallies of the vote and the power structure gave them a runaround. They were told that votes weren't counted at the polls, but were counted downtown at the county clerk's office. They went down to the county clerk's office and were told that votes were counted at the polls. The brothers and sisters got very discouraged when they came in that night and, and could only give estimates of the vote. When they tallied them up, uh, they came up with only 70 or 80 votes. They thought Huey was not gonna get on the ballot Everybody was disturbed, thinking that not enough people would even take the time to vote Huey's name onto the ballot. But I said, what are you talking about? We're going to be on the ballot by three or four times the votes we need. They didn't believe it. I went down to the Peace and Freedom Party office, and I took the votes they had tallied up from the black community and put them together with the ones that uh, had come in for the Peace and Freedom Party in the white community. We stood there and watched, and a lot of people started coming in with votes from everywhere. The next titling we knew, we were way over what we needed. So I called up brothers and sisters and told them, hey, we're on the ballot. They felt a little better though. We still believe a lot of the votes went uncounted in the actual election. Huey got 25,000 votes, but I think the votes were tampered with because they definitely wouldn't let us anywhere near the county. The primaries were important to the Free Huey campaign. We talked about the trial and educated the masses of people about who Huey was so the people could come out to support him. A vote for him was a vote of support. One thing we found out for sure was how many thousands of voters really support the party. A person would have to support the Black Panther Party and know something about our basic ideas to vote for a member of our party who was on the ballot. 
Although presently we aren't running any candidates, we will work for candidates who support the 10-point platform and program of the Black Panther Party. So, um, I dropped in the comments, what are your thoughts on their thoughts on riots? Um, and I, I went on to say, I tend to think that they're right. The spontaneous uprising model isn't very efficient at securing material gains. And well, Trisha, you already know my thoughts on that, but um, that, that's ultimately why I'm not an anarchist because the spontaneous uprising model is not efficient at securing material gains, uh, at least not by itself. Anyway, um, but I went on <laughs> to say that it's a valid form of protest for sure. Um, and then Natalie said me, I think not reacting to emotion and staying with the plan was correct and most, most likely save lives. And then she went on to say, and let me add a hard thing to do, especially when those you care about have been murdered in cold blood by police. Yeah, agreed. I, I just realized my mic was still muted. I'm all like over here like, right. <laughs> and you can't hear me. <laughs> all right, who's next? Uh, Shadi, do you have the book pulled up? Would you like to take a turn I reading? If No? Okay. I don't have it at all. Alright. Um, Rob had put the link in the chat here in Zoom, but I don't know, being on the phone, if uh, that's easy to multitask on there as well as having this up. But I will I dive into... What's that? I did see a link in chat. Yeah. Uh... Yep, that's that's up there if you want to grab that to follow along and read if you want to. Um, uh, I will dive into the next section here. Huey is tried for murder. We knew before Huey's trial began in mid-July that the whole power structure wanted to hang Huey. We understood that William Noland, the publisher of the Oakland Tribune, the mayor, the other politicians, the DA, and the cops were all so treacherous that they would do anything to get a conviction and send Huey to the gas chamber. We asked Charles Gary a number of times what he thought would happen. He would run it down how Huey was really innocent and how the two cops had shot each other in an attempt to kill Huey. He knew that defending Huey was the most necessary thing that a lawyer could do to save human integrity because the power structure was attempting to crucify a black man who was the heir of Malcolm X, Huey P. Newton, the man who put in motion a revolutionary movement to bring the struggle to a higher level. Brother Malcolm had educated black people to the need for a political party like the Black Panther Party, and Charles Gary understood this. Charles told us that Llewell Johnson, the DA prosecuting Huey, knew that Huey wasn't guilty. He said that even though these cats are going to do everything possible to get a guilty verdict, and that even though he had shared our understanding of how corrupt we felt the legal system was, he knew that we should get a not guilty verdict. We should definitely get a not guilty. The trial started, and Charles defended Huey. The way the trial went down, the so-called kidnap charge had to be dropped right away. The person who was supposed to have been kidnapped came forth on the witness stand and refused to testify. Later, he said that he had been intimidated by the police to make false statements. Also familiar. Um, right. They <laughs> All right, still goes on today. 
they tried to set Huey up as, quote, the only person who could have done the shooting. Gene McKinney, who was with Brother Huey on the evening when the cops tried to kill him, came to the witness stand, and Jensen and the judge tried to force him to testify. <coughs> Excuse me. He refused. He took the Fifth Amendment. The judge is supposed to be impartial, if nothing else, but he was working with the DA through the whole trial. The main prosecution witness Jensen put up against Huey was a bus driver named Greer, who said that he had gotten a clear look at the shooting. Gary found a passenger who was on the bus who completely contradicted Greer's story and said that Greer couldn't have seen anything. Apparently, months before, when the police first asked Greer questions, he had initially stated, I didn't get a clear look as to who it was. He said he didn't get a clear look. However, on the police report that Jensen had entered into evidence for the jury to have and read over, this particular statement had been changed to, I did get a clear look. It had been changed by the DA and the cops. Greer was lying on the stand and Jensen knew it. It came out during the trial that Greer's first interview had been taped by the police department. Gary got hold of the tape, duplicated it, and brought it to court while the jury was trying to decide on our Minister of Defense. Gary argued in court that the tape recording showed that somebody had tampered with the written transcript and that the DA had knowingly submitted that crap as evidence. Gary didn't take any crap from the judge. He played the tape recording, argued with the judge, and finally got the judge to recognize the tape recording as the real evidence in order that a new transcript be made in which Greer said, I didn't see the who did the shooting. Even though when they brought the new transcript into the jury room, no one on the journey was no one on the jury, sorry, was told that this was new evidence, so they didn't bother to read it. Gary's a hardworking revolutionary lawyer who really goes after the facts. All during the trial, he's worked in the evenings investigating and digging up evidence to prove Brother Huey's innocence. We waited in those days when the jury was out on Brother Huey. And we knew that they had to come up with a not guilty verdict, especially if they read the last piece of evidence Gary had submitted. We really didn't know it at that time, but we speculated that Judge Monroe Freedom was really working in conjunction with the power structure which was trying to get Huey railroaded. And that because of him, the jury didn't know about the new evidence. We didn't put it past the power structure to try to buy out a member of the jury or anything like that. But we felt that someone on the jury would know the real facts after having read them and would realize that Brother Huey wasn't guilty, not even of voluntary manslaughter. That night, we heard that the jury had reached a verdict. We had said, if they kill Huey P. Newton, the sky is the limit. We meant every word of that. If they kill Huey P. Newton, the sky is the limit. We were going to go down with Brother Huey because Huey was the leader of our party. But the sky is the limit also meant that we would go to the highest court if necessary. They had thousands of cops around in those days when the jury was deliberating so that you couldn't get two blocks anywhere throughout the black community without seeing a regular city police car or a highway patrol car. I also heard that they had secretly placed National Guardsmen in different places around Oakland and San Francisco. You couldn't go two blocks in that city day or night, especially in the afternoon, without seeing a cop car with two, three, or four policemen in it with shotguns and helmets and all that riot equipment. That's how tight the cities of Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, and Richmond were. I was at home. It reminds me a lot of fucking Minneapolis last summer. Right. 
I mean, they weren't so secretly placed about the National Guard, but, you know, in terms of the thousands of cops literally everywhere in the fucking city, fully on right. the fucking riot here and shit. Uh, I mean, we saw that literally last summer. Right. A direct militarization of the police. Right. Police state shit. Uh, I was at home at my mother's house, and my mother came in and said, Bobby, Bobby, did you hear that on TV? They said that the jury has reached a verdict on Huey P. Newton. I jumped up and got into a car and drove over to David Hilliard's house. When I got there, it was on the radio that they had found Huey guilty of third-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter. I just couldn't see that. That pissed me off. Made me re- it really made me mad. And some brothers started saying, let's burn the town down. Let's burn this town down. At that point, I remembered that there had been a press interview on TV a few days before the jury came out. Huey was asked, what do you mean by the sky is the limit? Huey had said that he was sure that he would not be convicted at all, but if he was, the party would fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. Huey also had sent a message to us that we should defend ourselves if unjustly attacked, but that we just didn't believe in spontaneous rioting. I was sitting in the house, and this brother was talking about, ah, man, let's go burn it down. Let's go burn it down. And I told them no, that they couldn't do it. A lot of party members were calling up from all over town asking, what should we do? We told them, cool it and don't do anything. We're not supposed to be doing anything. They haven't killed the brother. I said, we said that if they kill Huey P. Newton, the sky is the limit. But right now, the sky is the limit in terms of the legal fight because they got Huey in for 2 to 15, and we're going to have a one and a half or two year fight on our hands trying to get Huey free. We're going to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. That's what Huey P. Newton said, and that's what we're going to do. Don't be running out in the streets there. I said, because there's so many cops out there now that if you turn your head wrong, man, you might get shot down. You'll just be brutalized and murdered. From there, we started getting petitions signed demanding that Huey P. Newton be given appeal bond because a third-degree conviction allowed a man to have bail. But Judge Friedman, racist and punkish as he was, wouldn't give Huey the bond. Huey is now in some jail in San Luis Obispo. Uh, They had denied him bail while the case goes to the higher courts. He is nothing but a political prisoner. The whole 10-point platform and program and the party's true ideology and philosophy came out during Huey's trial, although much of the press didn't want to print it. It would have been in our favor if people had learned the truth. People would have known the real objectives of the Black Panther Party. Charles Gary is the man who really brought all that out and was able to set forth the philosophy and ideology of the Black Panther Party. A lot of judges in the future are going to try and cut it off, but they can't separate our ideology and our philosophy from ourselves when they trump up charges on us and try to railroad us into prisons and jails. All right. Would you like to... Either of you want to pick up the next section? I don't. Okay. Hey man, what is that jamming over there? It's some copyright free music on YouTube music. 
Okay, I like it though. It sounds good. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, I've actually been listening to these like playlists a lot, like even when we're not recording. I'm digging that it really carries that vibe of mixed. Carries that vibe of what? It's fitting. Of the late 60s. Fair. Uh, do you want to pick up that pigs, puritanism, and racism? Are you asking me or Shadi? Either of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I will. Uh, one Tuesday night around midnight, right after the verdict on Huey had come down, two Oakland pigs just drove up in front of the Panther National Headquarters office and emptied 12 rounds into it. One shell shot the window wall up and another went into the cafe next door. Luckily, no one was in the office at the time. They talk about law and order. It's a felony to shoot inside of a building where people are living. There are apartments in the back of the building and apartments upstairs. You dig where it's at? These dudes are breaking the law, but they keep saying that we're the lawbreakers. Huey always made us follow the law to the letter because within the confines of following the law to the letter, Huey had a principle. The principle was that laws are made by mankind to serve mankind, but once those laws stop serving mankind in any society, anywhere in the world, the people are supposed to move forth and change those laws so the laws will serve them. That's how intensely the whole party has related to this system. That's what people never know. It's very dangerous to try to bring about this type of change, uh, especially when you are messing with a tyrannical, despotic system. Most people, most middle-class middle people, don't understand that the system is very despotic and very tyrannical. Now those pigs were there waiting, waiting for something to happen in Oakland because of the guilty verdict. You did? They were on the lookout for a panther, for any cat in a black leather jacket to shoot him to blow him away. They had murder and malice in their hearts. When you read the law book on the charge of murder, it says malice and intent. That's what it says. The same bulls were waiting there, but they couldn't find any panthers, so they decided to shoot up the office. Even police chief Gaines saw that the incident could be politically destructive with the whole police department. We'd been down on the police department for two years talking about the ex-brutality and murder they've committed in the black community. Two hours later, uh, Gain suspended them from the force. Boom. Then he charged them with the felony shooting into an inhabited building and fired them from the police force. Gain was running around and trying to defend himself by uh, doing these two pigs in. Later, the court let him off with two or three years probation. He didn't use the excuse that they were drunk. He said stuff like that, like, well, they're human and they didn't like the way the verdict came down and blah, blah, be blue. And I want you all, other police officers, not to feel this way. But at the same time, we must remember that these were only two police officers. Um, he also had to appeal to all the police officers. He's got over a thousand cops. He appealed to them through the newspapers and mass media. Don't do anything else. Let us keep our heads, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff exposed those pigs. The racism was placed out front where it belongs, you dig? The people saw, saw it for what it was. 
There's a good, uh, there's a lot of good cops on the police force, but you don't go around depending on 20% of the force on the good cops when 80% of the force is fucking you up. Every time we turned around, those pigs would be blasting people away, arresting dudes, railroading them, and attacking cats. So you can't depend on them. We attacked that racist aspect of the police department. Then, we had a big scene about gang hiring cops from the South. We found out that one of the Oakland pigs came from Florida. Down South, it's a bitch. The average white person down South really envelops himself in the superiority bullshit. That's very important to understand. Really, I'm a liberal. All that's a bunch of bullshit. And black people know it. They don't want to hear it. Don't be calling them colored or Negroes and speak articulately with a lot of verbal sincerity around it. Fuck that, because black people don't want to hear it. That shit's a hundred years old, as old as the Emancipation Proclamation. Later for that. Down south, the cops get an orientation that is really laid on by the local power structure, and they project all these ideas and misconceptions about black people. It's just a uh, perpetuation and institutionalization of racism. We don't practice racism. We practice dualism, two ways of thinking. Most people don't understand what the Panther Party means by this. What we did was research a lot of history. This is what Huey did. This is what Eldridge did. We researched it all the way back to Europe. Not only are we down on white racism, but we are down on black racism. You know, the cultural nationalists say, I'm black, I'm beautiful. Most of those cats will project a puritanical concept of blackness. They only relate to the purity of blackness, of being a black person. Uh, when we say blackness, we mean relating to black culture. These cats hang themselves up. White people have always projected in their educational institutions a very, a very puritanical, very absolute superiority thing. This is projected in what they teach us in the school system. So what do we get? I'll give you ex uh, a few examples to show you what I mean. You're looking at a soap opera. Mary, you cannot marry John. Mother, why? John is, uh, has an illegitimate child. Oh, mother. Wow, so they go through all these goddamn fucked up changes. But this is directly related to something. Sometimes during a speech, Eldridge would say, power comes out of the lips of a pussy, just like that. Then 20 minutes later, he'll turn right back around and say, power comes out of the barrel of a dick. People don't know what the fuck he's talking about, but I tell him, Eldridge, I understand exactly what you're saying because I know what's happening. In Soul on Ice, Eldridge says it's a very necessary to relate to the mind, to, uh, to relate the mind to the body. They both must, must uh, function together to survive. That's key. So take the analogy of the human being, these very practical things of the mind, and the bodily functioning together and uh, relate them to a whole society having a government with people in it who are supposed to relate to them on a, or who are supposed to serve the people, sorry, not supposed to relate to them. The government becomes the mind that leads the people, that represents the people, and gives them proper representation. When you start talking about relating to uh, the mind of the body of each individual, practicing this dualism, this two-way thinking, you're talking about man. Then you have a thing where the power structure, the government, masses forces uh, and guns and goes to Vietnam, kills poor people, masses forces in the black community, po uh, police forces are doubled, tripled, quadrupled, and murdering and brutalizing goes on around the world. The people who the government is supposed to represent want to bring themselves into a part of the government, but a government is cutting them off. And an individual, if the head were cut off, it would be a very direct tragedy and mind being separated from a body. Neither would survive, neither would function 
uh, neither would function without the other. So when you're talking that way, you're relating to the essence of a body. The dick on a man, we say it just like that. The pussy on a woman are related to reproducing human beings. This is what all this relates to. This is how human beings come about. But we have to check out history now and see how in the fuck we were taught that sex, pussy, and dicks were bad and nasty things. Man, that also is still... Uh, all I could think is like the fucking Westboro Baptist Church. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I was thinking the same fucking thing. Like, ah, oh, those motherfuckers. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, anyhow. In California, now there's a controversy about whether or not sex should be taught to kids. Why do we have to go through this controversy? Three billion people on the face of this motherfucking earth got here through good old down-home human screwing. You got here that way, I got here that way. Everybody got here through good old down-home screwing. How in the hell can sex be nasty and bad? Who in the fuck would project such an image? So you ask the question, why the fuck did this happen? All you have to do is relate back to history and see how different societies develop and see how different concepts took over those societies and became dominant and pervaded the society, the minds of its people, and how they were perpetuated up to now. So as Huey said, let's go back, back, back. Let's go to Europe. Let's take Europe uh, and let's take Africa. Let's take two different peoples even before they met each other. Let's, uh, let's take Europe. You, Europe had the one-headed God concept, the all-pure God, right? The, uh, the pure blood and my son of pure blood will become a king and my daughter of pure blood will become queen. This is the thing that went down through history. This is directly related to this purity of God bullshit, the single-headed God, the one-headed God. It's, it's not just the idea of the one-headed God, but what people projected and put into it. People said, I'm made in the image of God. Boom. They're made in the image of this pure head who's absolute, who's all superior, who's all pure. So goddamn pure that people began to read things into the bullshit and they began to reject their basic animal drives. But. Right. And I want to interject for one moment here of literally like the opposite, the flip of that is what's actually true. The people were creating these gods in their own fucking image. And trying to, like, force that as far as, like, oh, here's these personality traits that we're just going to assign to this god. Um, they're trying to humanize this idea of a deity. When that right there, that, that goes so far away from the actual focus of the metaphysical roots of every religion, which is to... Tap into the divine and invoke that within yourself to connect with that, to connect with everything that is. And I'll just leave it at that. But I just find it humorous that they're always like, oh, I'm in, I'm made in the image of God. And it's like, no, you made that God in the image of you. Right. Uh, this is a long section. Do you want to take over? Sure, I can put the pipe down for a moment. <laughs> been smoking a bowl over here um uh actually before, before we get back to it let me check the comments okay and there's natalie as usual she said it amazes Hi, natalie. me right yeah she said uh <laughs> it amazes me how they were able to get the word out and now we have all these ways to communicate and we can't even get the we can't even seem to get the left to organize as well 
I agree. Right. Frankly, I agree. And a lot of it has to do with the Red Scare. Um, yeah. This isn't the, the this time and place to talk about that, but there, there's We will get whole, to that soon. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that these, uh, these platforms are not, you know, built for this. In fact, these platforms uphold the status quo. So they're never going to let us get big, not unless we pay them a bunch of money. Fuck that. <laughs> so I mean, you know, everything that we're doing, we're trying to we're trying to do it organically, and we're trying to build a community that maybe can you know coalesce in the real world and and, and make the changes that we want to see. We are the leaders we've been waiting for. Right, and that that is one thing that we need to keep our focus on there. Those words of Grace Lee Boggs, because it. We are those rainbow warriors that were prophesied that, you know, we were talking about the other day. We are those people who we have been waiting for. Like, this embodies that entire concept of being the change that you wish to see in the world. That change starts with you. Without going too far down the Gracely box rabbit hole, though, like, man, so much of what she said when I heard her speak at the Occupy the Midwest Summit, I didn't even get until years later. Like, right when it really started to resonate as you were seeing things around you and going oh fuck this is what she meant yeah yeah exactly and she was so wise man so wise I wish I'd been able to be there that night and yeah I mean she was like 98 her. years old she better be wise <laughs> right right she earned leveling up that far for sure yeah, yeah for real <laughs> Uh, back to the book. Uh, just a second to like this. In California now, there's a controversy about whether or not sex should be taught to kids. Why do we have to go through this controversy? Oh wait, I'm at the wrong paragraph. You read that one. I yeah, it was. Uh, but even the masses of people. There we go. Okay, I bumped the screen apparently, and. <laughs> where we were at was no longer the second paragraph on the page. At least I caught myself first sentence like, wait, no. <laughs> All right. But even the masses of people in Europe screwed. They had a tendency to accept the so-called bad things about themselves. It was that monarchy, that government, that king, queen, and hierarchy that laid the rules out. And they themselves projected themselves in this puritanical image of God. They were created in the image of God, and they had the power and the guns and the force to see that everybody stayed pure. And if you didn't stay pure, then you were a witch and you were burned at the stake. This happened before they even met black Africans. Europeans were lynching people then. I'm not saying all societies in Africa didn't have this puritanical concept, but many societies they call primitive, even some outside of Africa, had what many people define as pagan gods, a two-headed god system or a three-headed god system, but they also said they are made in this image of God. You look at the society and the way people develop, and you look back in history, and you can find these things out. This head was a three-headed god with a neutral head, a bad head, and a good head. 
they said they were made in the image of God, so they were able to accept the bad things and the good things about themselves. But the European monarchies perpetuated this purity bullshit, tabooing things like sluts or those who are downgraded and under their feet. You're a vassal. This projection by the monarchy of I am the greatest and all that shit was very bad for human society because it was a process of chopping the head from the body, of the government heads being cut away from the masses of the people. The Africans mostly had the two-headed God system, bad and good, and said they were made in the image of God. Maybe it developed out of the fact that they had so much fucking food and fucking land down there that they didn't have to worry about a bunch of bullshit. It may be related to industrial development and poor peoples. I don't know. So when the European met the African, when the whole economic development of using slaves came about, these taboos were ingrained in the minds of people in European society, especially with the monarchy projecting that purity bullshit for the people. Ah, he's different than I am. He's black. In the kind of system that has a two-headed god, that's impossible. But if the god is one-headed, pure-headed, he's absolute. They put taboos on the Africans the same way that they put them on their own people, in their own society, with the witch concept. They were burning white people at the stake of their own society even before they met Africans. That got transported over to America, this thing about witches. They even have a tendency to carry it on now. They superficialize the witch, like the one on TV, Samantha. A good little puritanical witch. It's a thing with them. You have to understand society and have a concept of how human beings function to be able to see them and to be able to define how things will go, especially if you try to relate directly to it. When the Panther Party first came on the scene, the man said, they're all anti-white, they're a bunch of black racists. We never considered ourselves a bunch of black racists. Oh, they're going to come up in our communities and they're going to shoot us all up. This wasn't the thing at all. We're saying we aren't going into this white community shooting up white people. We're going to defend ourselves against those racists who already occupy our community, those pigs, and others who come down and shoot us up. We're going to defend our community because we want the power to determine our own destiny in our own black community. We have a right to this, brother. The way we've been treated for 400 years, this is what we want. At the same time, we say we hope to civilize all those who are racist in their own communities or who relate to it, who don't understand what the fuck's going on. Boom. Oh, no, they can't do that. They have guns. They got to be racist. They accuse us of being what they are. Still sound familiar? What we're saying is you don't fight fire with fire. You fight fire with water. The thing is to define what the fuck is the water. We're saying it's the mass of the people. We say that the water represents a very defensive thing. We say that the people have a right to pick up guns. They're the water. All the people. The hippies, the yippies, the whites, the blacks, the Vietnamese. They have a right to pick up guns to defend themselves against the fire of aggression. That's why we go through a long process of trying to educate the people. All of them. The hippies, whites, blacks, everybody. We try to organize them. We're talking about revolution in the mother country. We have a tendency to parallel the mother country with relating only to the mind and the black colony being related only to the body. Eldridge says that the closest this country has ever come to relating the mind to the body symbolically 
was when we heard rumors of Jacqueline and John F. Kennedy doing the twist inside the White House. Because to wiggle your butt is very low down in white society. Elvis Presley is a white boy who wiggles his legs and wiggles his ass. What is he doing? We felt something was happening. A change was occurring. A lot of hippies appeared. The hippies denounced their mamas and daddies. You're a bunch of capitalist exploiting bastards and you relate to racism. I don't even want to hear you. I don't even want to talk to you. They were saying to their parents. They tried to escape. We escaped. We respect them because they were trying to redeem themselves in their own way from the racism that they'd been caught up in. But you can't look at them as individuals. You have to look at them as a collective group and a development. If you don't look at it that way, you won't see it. I can always talk about myself as an individual. Huey can talk about himself as an individual. At the same time, we're still a collective group because we always tell black people, we don't give a fuck whether you're wearing a pimp suit, whether you're wearing an African gown, whether you've got a natural on, whether you're wearing a Black Panther uniform, whether you live in Africa, whether you're over in Vietnam, because wherever you are, the racists and imperial, imperialists will brutalize, murder, and oppress you because they've been doing it for 400 years and they're still practicing it. Many leftists, hippies, and yippies will go out to redress their grievances against something that they see as dead wrong appeared to me that war is wrong. But what happens? The same goddamn things that have been perpetuated against all the colored peoples of the world. The pigs whipped their heads and cracked their skulls. They stopped and they said, wait a minute, you guys are really right. Police brutality is a motherfucker. It's something else. It's bad. All we're doing is saying we want some land, some bread, some housing, some education, some clothing, some justice, some peace. When we say that, they go through a bunch of sincerity bullshit that you hear on the radio. So-and-so from the NAACP in conjunction with Governor Reagan and representatives from so-and-so are now investigating the school into integration problem. They are also concerning themselves with how welfare recipients receive their checks, blah, blah, blah. That's all we hear. Bob Dylan sings about one of these cats. You don't know what is happening, do you, Mr. Jones? Okay, so he eats his motherfucking salami sandwich on, our, on sour French bread with cheese and mayonnaise and lettuce and all this motherfucking bullshit in the middle of a TV program. Meanwhile, while he's doing that, either there's a pimp on the block thinking about robbing some joint or he's pimping some chick or he's beating somebody's ass or there's a mother over there wondering how she's going to feed her kids tomorrow morning. Or the mother's tired, black and broke. She had to work 20 years like my mother worked. She used to scrub kitchens like that woman you see over there. You've seen her over there, that black woman right next door there. She sweeps, and I don't know what kind of pay she gets. She may even get paid good. I don't know. But my mother used to work for a buck an hour. I even remember when my mother worked for 75 cents an hour, scrubbing those floors. She'd come home with shopping bags. She's tired. So you have a woman like that, another cat going to jail, hundreds of them getting busted by the pigs. Some cop walks up to them and says, expletive, where are you going? And then this black man stands there and says, ah, that expletive, what do you mean? Don't call me that. Or if he doesn't defend himself, he says, I'm going down the street, sir. It doesn't make any difference whether he rises up and defends himself or whether he tires to use the technique of meekness and acquiescence. He's still being brutalized or murdered. We read in the papers that so-and-so was allegedly committing a burglary. 
I'm not saying that some of the brothers aren't committing burglaries. I'm not even condoning them committing a burglary. Because I know why he's doing it in the first place. To walk off into a bank and say, stick him up, motherfucker, this is a holdup. When a brother gets mad after living in this confinement in these ghettos 20 or 30 years and walks up and says, stick him up, motherfucker, up against the wall, this is a holdup. He isn't asking anybody in there what the color of their skin is. Because there's some black tellers in there, too. All he wants is that money to relieve himself of that oppression he's been subjected to for so many years. Talk about dualism. Talk about the mind and the body. I think this is the key thing. And sometimes when the teachers say, you're talking about the mind and body, you're really talking about the pussy, the dick, the mind, the body, the pussy, the dick, the mind. We're talking about babies that come out of pussies of women. We're talking about the dudes that put their dicks in the pussies of women. We're talking about the minds being related to the correct social order. Stop all this existing bullshit. We're talking about human beginning or being beginning and surviving. Uh, that's what we're talking about. And I fucking love the way that he put all of that. Um, especially when it comes to the previous paragraph there and putting into context burglaries and shit. And this is something that I've tried to address with some racist white people that I've come across online who don't fucking understand what it is to actually grow up in poverty. And if it's not burglary, it's fucking dealing drugs or boosting cars or whatever it is. Because when you're basically shown nothing but fucking oppression and the only fucking way to acquire enough, to come up enough, to be more than just surviving, is to grab a hold of it and take it, just like you see others do, there's your options. And until you can understand that frame of mind and those circumstances, those lived experiences, you have no reason or no, no understanding of why that happens. And until you have that, you can't have any empathy for the fucking situation. And that's the fucking goal is to have some empathy, some fucking understanding of like when we create circumstances that impose economic fucking oppression, we create the crime. The community, the society is responsible for that just as much as the individual. And it's fucked that this even needs to be explained to people who just simply don't understand what it is to come up in an area that is full of poverty right. you know in flint you see this across the board it doesn't matter your ethnicity black white brown any shade everybody's fucking poor i've known gangbangers of every fucking shade of the rainbow who did shit like this because that's the only avenue they saw that they could actually fucking make enough money to pay their bills to fucking keep food in their kids mouths because society itself created the conditions of poverty there right um anyway i think um we're probably done reading more we're at the two hour mark but i do have a video um that i was saving for towards the end so uh 
Yeah. <clears throat> right on. Let it rip. I'm not hearing it either. Did you click share sound too, or? Well, oh, that's why. Okay, hold on. <laughs> yeah, gonna have to rewind. Well, our first visit will be to California, where we'll go to the Oakland Community Learning Center. This is a school that was started by a political organization in the black community of Oakland. Before you can really appreciate a visit to this school, you'll probably need some background information. Well, back in the 60s, a man named Huey Newton started a group called the Black Panthers. They were a very controversial outfit back then because they were critical of the way in which the local police behaved in their community. Many of their members, including Huey, were arrested and some even served time in jail for their activities. Many people know of the Panthers because of their run-ins with the police, but there's another side to this organization. In Oakland, in many ways a poor community, the Panthers are also known for their projects like the breakfast program for school children and for the community learning center. When we visited the center, we saw that they had a different approach to teaching and learning. We're going to be meeting a student at the learning center, a young lady named Kalita. And when the film opens, Kalita is interviewing Huey Newton, founder of the Black Panthers. My name is Kalita Smith. I'm eight and a half years old. I live in Oakland, California. I go to school at the Oakland Community Learning Center. My school was started by the Black Panther Party. The earliest age you start going to the school is when you're two. We don't have grades in our school. We have levels. Manzanas. They gustan manzanas? They put us in different levels based on what we can do. They gusta? They gusta? Gusta? It's, uh, everything's uh, a problem. For, for example, uh, they used to serve cookies and uh, I think graham crackers and milk in the morning uh, to, to uh, children uh, in primary school who had the money to pay for it. And if you didn't have the money to pay for it, you had to put your head on the desk until the other kids uh, finished eating. I always thought that was uh, very bad, but at the Oakland Community School, everybody eats. My school serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner because sometimes your mother or father or whoever you're living with probably don't have enough food for you. Some of the people who serve food are teachers. What do you like best about this school? I like you best, and uh, oh, I like the children best because um, 
The children at the school are, I, I think, are just fantastic. Um, we weren't allowed to be free to uh, be creative, and, and uh, our curiosity was, uh, uh, and our questions about things um, were slowly uh, discouraged. Uh, whenever I asked a question in the class, if it was an intelligent question, the teacher would think I was just trying to be smart. And I would say, be quiet, you know, or else go ahead and sit in the corner. But the children in our school are free, and they ask all sort of questions, and they, uh, uh, we try to give them an answer. But they teach us so much. I think that uh, you teach us a lot, uh, because uh, we need to know the things that you're thinking, because you come up with fresh ideas, you see. And I talked to your mother today, and Kalita. Aren't you supposed to be at the Justice Court meeting? Well, you really have to remember the Justice Court meeting, okay? You should go up now. Today, Carol sent me a letter about Sherry not doing her homework. The Justice Committee gives you a method correction if you don't do your homework, if you play in class, if you talk back to teachers or try to fight teachers. I love that it's the kids holding each other accountable. I lay in some place and just forget about and go on other things. Why do you do that? I don't know. Isn't it a method of correction? I think she shouldn't have no TV when she go home and she should have free, she shouldn't have free time. I think the Justice Board treated Sherry okay because she needed a method correction and a method correction from a teacher or somebody means they love you. That was beautiful. I can't hear you. Yeah, I, I see your I lips realized, moving. <laughs> I realized. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, like, especially the fact that the kids are holding each other accountable. That's fucking crucial. Right. That's teaching them those life skills right there to be able to communicate problems without it being an argument or your emotions getting all highly involved yelling at each other or anything it's like no okay let's see what would be a good correction here for you to understand that you need to focus during this time that and the the factor that it's the kids themselves holding each other accountable instead of oh this adult is the authority to tell you what to do no you need to discuss amongst yourselves what do you feel is right and wrong in this situation how to address it and that's Fucking beautiful. And, and that's fucking beautiful. Talking about uh, how much they learn from the kids. That's fucking important. Too. Right. Absolutely. This, you know, harkens back to what I was saying earlier of treat children like the human beings that they are. Talk to them like the human beings they are. You can't teach them what to think and expect a good result. You have to teach them how to think how to question things, and how to 
relate and communicate with each other in a healthy fucking manner. And that right there is a prime example of it in that video. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, we talk about this a lot, but like they were more effective than the government at, you know, raising the material conditions of the black community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because they took that upon themselves and made sure that it happened. They didn't leave it up to a governmental body. They actually gave a shit. And, you know, this right here is what he was alluding to earlier with the whole breakdown about um, revolution coming from the lips of a pussy or from the barrel of a dick. Of It's how you raise your children that will really change the face of the world. That right there is revolutionary. That is how you change the circumstances around you and how society operates. Learn about where you came from. Understand, okay, well, these were positive aspects in that raising and these were negative aspects in that raising and we can improve on that. Look at how beautiful that example is. It was just led in that. Just... It astounds me that there aren't more people in this world in this day and age who address parenting or even, you know, the raising of children in general, because it does take a village, not just the parents. But it amazes me that we are still yet to see this become more common when it comes to the raising of children, because this right here is how you raise people to be good. Not nice. Good to have ethics, to show regard for each other as equal human beings. Absolutely. Um, well, is there anything you want to plug before we uh, wrap this up? I'm also going to you know, catch up on the comments again. Well, I mean, definitely join us next week. We will be picking back up here with Bobby Seal's book at the bottom of page 146, the section Eldridge is free. Uh, that'll be next Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, be sure to join us for that as well as check out Monday night's show. Uh, we'll be going over some more current events uh, also at 8 p.m. And if you get the opportunity, check out the labor history pieces that we're kicking out. I believe we have another one scheduled to release on Wednesday. Um, depending on what happens in the next couple of days, you'll probably see some over the weekend too. So keep your eyes open and see what we're sharing out there on the Facebook page, Twitter, Insta, YouTube, you name it. And uh, we'll see you out there. Thank you for the support. Hell yeah. Um, so Natalie said, and so much media left fighting against each other on their platforms, and it's usually about small things that just take us farther from getting policy and real reform that helps all people. Leads to more and more division of the left. I agree. Yeah. And uh, as I commented back, I, you know, like we advocate for coalition building and we try to platform other leftists out. We shouldn't be fighting each other. We have 
you know, common goals, even if we don't agree on you know, everything. Like anarchists and communists are never gonna agree on the role of the state, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be comrades. Right. Like we In agree fact, on I, I so think, many more things than what we disagree on, you know? Exactly. We Remember, have that common The end goal of communism is anarchism. <laughs> right. If we can get people, okay, like say for example, this beautiful example that was just led by these children. If we can actually get on the same page with raising children in that manner, look, just imagine the significant changes we could see in society where there is no longer a need for police because people are comfortable discussing things with each other and holding each other accountable. Because well, yeah, every. Imagine what could change over this happening for one generation. Right. I mean, to be fair, we can already see some of it because I see a lot of, you know, the hippy-dippy crowd raising their children in this type of manner to be open and communicate about things and teach them that it's okay so that that way, you know, for one, they understand accountability, but for two, they're comfortable doing so. Um, these are things that we can already see the effect of because of those hippy dippies that Bobby was referring to that were of their generation. So we can already see this shift. Um, hell, this is even the only reason why I'm even aware of like the Rainbow Warriors prophecy and things like that because of seeing the second wave, third wave of hippies. And this change is possible to be able to actually get society to a point where we are not only feeling responsible for regulating ourselves, but we're able to be accountable with each other. That's vital. That's fucking vital to actually enacting the changes that we want to make, that we need to make to improve the world, to end the fucking inequality, end the oppression. Yeah. Um, so Natalie also said familiar. Sure does, uh, sure does, like how the hell, how the heck, oh my God. The right wing can now believe being anti-fascist is a bad thing. I think I can understand in a way how they, the Trump and right wing are saying it is now a terrorist group. and. Uh, mainstream media blaring uh, it. Why does it keep scrolling down? It's pissing me off. Blaring uh, it out to their viewers and the right wing believes it all. And then she right, also said, Robert Trish, let me know when you have time to fill me in on group moderator and what to do. Absolutely. Honestly, Natalie, pretty much what you do now, except for you can do it as the page or, you know, like on behalf of the group. Right. Like, that's one thing that we've noticed is you interact on our pages just as much as we do. So literally, yeah, like that's that's what we need is you to keep doing what you're already doing as one of this many. That was <laughs> such awkward wording. <laughs> I know. I know. You know, I like awkward, though. I do. I do. <laughs> um... 
so yeah, join us next Thursday. I'm probably going to repeat some things that Trisha said, but join us next Thursday for part nine of this series. Um, we're going to be kicking out some more left ideology and historical pieces over the next couple of weeks. Uh, they always come out at 8 p.m., so uh, Eastern, that is. Uh, so, you know, just check our page regularly or check your podcast platforms regularly. Better yet, subscribe to our YouTube. You'll get a notification every time we go live. Or every time we release a video. Whatever. Yep. Um, also, we are actively working on getting the website up to date. Um, there's a learning That's going to take that. us having... Yeah, crash course in WordPress. <laughs> is that what it was? Something. Yeah. yeah. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, we'll we'll try to platform more and more off of our website as time goes on, uh, including putting all of our back library of things on our website, uh, and we'll be you know putting those in appropriate folders. Like you know the current event stream will have its own. Directory, feed right yeah and uh same thing for the miniseries right like the rev left book club is gonna have all of those segments we'll have a labor history area with all of right. those right. And, um, um natalie we're said also gonna something from facebook that said do i want to boost a post that sent something about one to ten dollars i really don't understand what that is that is Mark Zuckerberg trying to sucker us out of money. Just don't worry about that. <laughs> right, right. We've uh, we've played with some of that when it comes to advertising uh, for certain events, um, and we do notice that we get more interaction to the page, but we also get more trolls with it. So who knows where we'll go with that? Because well, yeah, Zuckerberg. I, don't, I, I don't know the the amount of interaction that it causes really worth the price and i mean it's not like we're gonna spend a fucking hundred dollars to promote a stream that we do every week yeah. right like last week there was two events that i had boosted like that with 10 bucks each and one of them it didn't load right so i i clicked it again like come on work and it just did it twice so there was 30 bucks dropped on advertising there that as far as you know people interacting more with the page it didn't generate much so i think we're going to get a lot further with organic interaction of if there's something you see on our page that you really like you really relate to and you want to you know partake in that discussion please do so and share it on your page have these conversations with your friends yeah i mean honestly that's the whole thing like i mean have conversations uh, that'll boost us in the algorithm, uh, for one, mm -hmm. and it'll inform people that don't know. For, right. I mean, that's worth it alone. Right. Um, like, this is incremental and necessary because, as it is, if we don't pay for advertising, then Facebook is basically leaving a lot of our shit off the feed because they're like, oh, fuck you, you're political. Well, no shit, we're political. There's fucking issues going on in the world that need addressed, you know. Right. And I mean, for um, that matter, it's so. not like Facebook. It's not like Facebook's presence isn't in, presence isn't inherently political itself. Right. Right. 
Like, you can't go into any space without some form of political intersectionality coming into play. You know? Like, for fuck's sake, even in some of the groups that I'm in that are purely existing for laughs, like, you know, some of the fucking shit, like, these are the voyages of the Starship Incel. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, shit like that. Like, it ends up being political conversation because we end up discussing human rights of women and other non-men, you know, um, right, because like the, of... Okay, here's my thing. The oppression the oppression of others is not a political view. Right, that's an ethical perspective. Like, do you have ethics? Oh, I knew you were cooking something good. Shit, you just made me hungry. Shit. <laughs> Like, pause the conversation for the cause, because, damn, that's a beautiful motherfucking sandwich. <laughs> hey, I was having a food porn moment in this shit. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah I could um, see you throwing down back there, back and forth and stuff. I knew you were putting something delicious together. That's beautiful. Yeah, because since sourdough is already cut so super fucking big, I can't even put this shit in a fucking toaster. So I had to make like two patties for it. The trick I have for toasting the sourdough is just turn it on end and toast one side and then turn it over and toast the other end. You know, <laughs> it's the only way I've been able to work around it, but the grill works too. Shit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Natalie said, if I send posts to the group, will they not need to be first approved? Am I to do that with other people's posts? Not sure where or how I am to see those if I am to approve or disapprove a post. So if you're a mod, you won't have to wait for approval anymore. Um, there should somewhere in your notifications be an invitation that you have to accept. Um, but, and, and yeah, you can do that with other people's posts too. Basically just use your best judgment. Right. We know already where your ethics lie, and so we trust you with that. If, I mean, if something... If somebody's spouting hateful shit, then, you know, you'll have the power to delete those comments or block the person if it's really necessary. Or, you right. know, mute him if it's a first offense or whatever, but um, that's basically it. That being said, um, I think I'm going to wrap this up, though. And, uh... Right on. Yeah. Go make some food, huh? Right. See, see that, everybody Sam. live again on Monday <laughs> and uh, pre-recorded on probably Tuesday and Wednesday. Maybe one over the weekend. Who knows? We'll find out. Indeed. <laughs> All right, everyone. Have a good night. Thank you for joining us for this episode. It has been dope as usual. We love you. Thank you. Fucking solidarity. Solidarity.